chapter 12. I mentioned last week the uh, fourth Monday outreach opportunity at the Rockland Rec Center. And uh, Mark, are you here? Do you want to say something about that? I'll give a little update. Uh, there was, uh, I think there was a little over 20 kids there, and we had a really good night. Jim seemed full. That's, that was, you know, that's what, for me, hospitality is having enough kids, so it seems good for them. And uh, we had a lot of kids to go off and So I just ask you to keep praying for that and uh, spread the word, and we'll have flyers available so you can invite kids to come and, uh, and just pray for the city of Rockland and just reach out to the kids that are. Thank you for your support, and we had enough cookies and all that, so and, uh, for the folks who donated. Thank you. All right. Well, Romans chapter 12, we looked last time in verses 9 through 13, uh, where Paul talks about the love. Or this is a, theory, uh, a series of body life, and last year, the, or last week, the emphasis was on what real love is, genuine love, or love with shoes on, as we uh, said at the end of the, uh, end of the message. And uh, love manifests itself in different ways. And when you read these verses in chapter, in chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, it's almost like reading Proverbs. You know, it's hard to, hard to plot. And, and to have nice paragraphs. And uh, it's very difficult to preach through uh, if you're looking for uh, uh, you know, a format of, of three points, so to speak. But what Paul, Paul here is doing is, through the Holy Spirit, giving us a description uh, of what real love is. And so last time, as we, as we looked at what real love is, we saw the purity of real love. We saw uh, that, that the real love serves that it, uh, that it is, it is unselfishness there in real love, the humility that grows out of it, and all the different identifying character marks. So uh, there's a catalog of, of loving acts there in verses 9 through 13 that relate how we as a local church are to relate to each other specifically and strategies. And you'll notice that much here really echoes Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. The Gospels and the Epistles are not in conflict uh, uh, with each other, and some people like to like to put what Paul says against what Jesus says, or what Jesus says against Paul says, but they all fit together. They all work together here because this is the inspired Word of God. It doesn't contradict, uh, contradict it. And so what we have then in verses uh, 14 through 21 also echoes Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. In fact, you may have picked that up as we read from Luke chapter 6 this morning. Some of the things we'll see here uh, in this passage in Romans 12 uh, relate to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. Uh, this includes a love for detractors or, oppo- or opponents, uh, a love uh, uh, full, of, full of empathy in verse 15, harmony in verse 16, uh, a deference to others, even our enemies in verse 17, uh, when, when you can avoid conflict, uh, the gospel mandates that there should be peaceful relations with each other and, and others outside of us, not rivalries or contention or apathy. So there's, 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 there's a lot here framed in by what Jesus taught in the gospels. But I hope that the thing you take away from this at the end of the passage is that a strong sense of God's presence, His faithfulness, and His ultimate justice means that His vengeance can be left in His hands. You see, God does not designate us as the DAs, the district attorneys, or the prosecuting attorneys in this kingdom. Now that's a role reserved for Him. Perhaps you remember when 
uh, an angel, uh, or the three men uh, visited Abraham in Genesis and told Abraham what was going to happen to the city of Sodom where his nephew Lot was residing with his family. And Abraham pleaded the Lord on his behalf and he said, well, will you, will you do it if there's, you know, ten righteous men? And, 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 and went on and on with the Lord uh, through that. And the result was ultimately there were not even a few righteous men that um, even Abraham might have thought there was. But at the end of that, Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The judge of all the earth do right? It's a question that comes to, with the answer to us, yes. He is the righteous judge, and he will always do what's right. And so, in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21, what we need to understand is that those united to Christ imitate their master. Not just simply out of dutiful, self-generated, self-righteous efforts, but in light of the great love with which he himself has loved us. Now look at verse 14 with me. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. What we need to understand here is Paul probably has a... a uh, 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 wants the believers to understand that they may be facing a personal opponent. A personal opponent in mind. Now this here, what we have, is one of the, the most revolutionary statements in the New Testament. And this can be carried out only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember verses 1 and 2? That is a secret for unleashing the power of the Spirit in our life. Offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. Having no rights, but God's rights. Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual worship. In verse 2, not being conformed or pressed into the world's mold. But being transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the renewing of your mind. This is the new mind that is, that is to result here. This is what it is. This is a this is framework here. And so you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is the will of God. The renewed mind here. This isn't something that's going to be native to us. This is a renewed mind. And remember what the basis of, uh, of, of the request to present your bodies a living sacrifice is. It's the mercies of God to you. In other words, what Paul is saying to us is this. Do you want to be a living sacrifice? Transformed? Renewed? Not conformed to the world? Here's the test. And so he says, verse 14, Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Notice he doesn't say, let the persecution that they're doing to you, just, just let it go. Let it go. Let it go. No. He's saying, be active. Don't be passive about it. Be active. He says, bless them which persecute you. He says, don't just be like the duck that the water goes off its back and so, okay, persecuting me, okay, just ignore it. No. He says, bless them. Bless them. Think of the Good Samaritan uh, there, who, 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 who he didn't just uh, uh, take, take, the, uh, take the, uh, the Jew that was lying broken and beaten and dying on the road to the hospital and leave him there, but he invests his care into him, continues to bless him. 
Bless them which persecute you. John Calvin said this, I have said that this is more difficult than to let go revenge when anyone is injured. For though some restrain their hands and are not led away by the passion of doing harm, they yet wish that some calamity or loss would in some way happen to their enemies. And even when they are so pacified that they wish no evil, there is hardly one in a hundred who wishes well to him from whom he has received an injury. Nay, most men daringly burst forth in the imprecations. But God, by his word, not only restrains our hands from doing evil, but also subdues the bitter feelings within. And not only so, but he would have us to be solicitous for the well-being of those who unjustly trouble us and seek our destruction. So what Paul wants us to understand, and Jesus, as he's already said in Luke 6, is that we're to be active in blessing those who have persecuted us. He says, bless and curse not. So there's a putting on there, not just the renewing of our mind to not react, but an act of blessing in tangible ways. And look what he says in verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. And I think he's going back again to the Christian community here. He's talked about the outsiders that persecute you. Now I think he's going back to the Christian community. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Galatians says, bear you one another's burdens. And we can understand that weeping with somebody who, who, who is weeping. And 1 Corinthians 12.26 tells us that when one part of the body hurts, the rest of the body hurts as well. And for some, in some ways, it might be easier for us to weep with them that weep than it is to rejoice with them that rejoice. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. But it's harder for me to rejoice with somebody who rejoices because I will tend to be envious of them. If somebody's hurting, I'll feel sorry, compassionate for them. But if somebody gets a, uh, you know, a, a promotion or, or, or they have something that happens to them that, that's good, I can tend to maybe relate to the weeping with them when they're hurting a lot easier than I can rejoicing when they're rejoicing. Because I have in my heart envy, jealousy. And these are concrete indications of, of love in the church. Uh, sometimes we can look at other people and, and, and see ourselves in competition with them. And so then when they arrive at a level that we're not there yet and we have expectations that we sh- and think we should get to that level, then we can tend to, to have envy towards them and that hinders our rejoicing. But Paul says rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. And he continues this thought within the Christian community again with verse 16 where he says, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Notice what he says in verse, what he does not say in verse 16. He does not tell us to think the same thing among each other. We all have different ways of thinking, different ideas, different opinions. And while we need to hold the cardinal truths of the gospel, we will have differences on other things, won't we? Even things in scripture. So he does not say, think the same thing among each other. But he says, think the same thing toward each other. And there's a difference there. 
They're thinking the same thing, not among each other, but toward each other, means a unity in an attitude, which everybody could have in a believing community. Not a uniformity in thinking. Because, remember, we're told we're very diverse. We all have different opinions. But there should be a unity in attitude. And that's the difference here. In other words, Paul says we are to display the same attitude toward others, despite their status, since we have a renewed mind given to us by grace. There is not to be arrogancy, pride, but there is to be genuine love to all your church family, regardless of rank or station. And that was one of the things that was going wrong, probably with the Jerusalem church, as James tells us in James chapter 2. He says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. And he talks about some people who are giving preference to those who are rich. Saying, yeah, come on here, sit here. And those who are poor say, sit here on the floor. And he says in verse 4 of James 2, uh, are, ye then, are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that loved him? But you have despised the poor. But what he's saying is they're to have a genuine love to all, uh, regardless of their rank and station. Uh, mind not high things, but condescend the men of low estate. That word in our uh, uh, language today, condescend, has a, has a negative connotation to it. You know, we talk about somebody who has a condescending attitude. But the condescend here, uh, uh, as it was translated in, in the 1600s, was the idea of stepping down out of, in grace and humility, not out of arrogance. It's a humble concern for one another. It's a highly valuing of others as made in the image of God and redeemed lowly people. It's no accident that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, God hath not chosen the wise, many wise in this world, but the foolish, the weak. That's where he sees the glory. So we don't run away from people who are out, the outcasts of society, but actually the idea here is those are the people we should be we should be pursuing people who are the outcasts of society, lowly people, condescend the men of low estate, people who are the outcasts, poor, needy, or have nothing to contribute to you, the people that society would avoid. Or maybe you can think of it like this in your high school days, the people everybody made fun of, people society would avoid. And ostracize. Paul says real love goes after them. Be not wise in your own conceits, he says. If you've grown corn, uh, you probably know that when corn grows and when it's still green, it stands nice and straight pretty much, right? But when corn is ripe, it tends to bend over. It tends to bend over. Mature corn bends low. And that's the picture here. Maturity. Maturity for the believer. It bends low. It doesn't stand straight and tall and proud. It bends low and helps. Helps those who really couldn't help you. Then in verse 17, he switches back, I believe, to the, to the, uh, to the outsiders, those who persecute, although it could have application inside the church body, but he says in verse 17, Recompense or repay to no man evil for evil, 
provide things honest in the sight of all men. And that's the idea there, the sight of all men. That's the watching world there. So uh, verses 17 through 21 then unpacks further what verse 14 had command. Bless them that curse you. Or persecute you, bless and curse not. So from here on, verse 17 and on, that's going to unpack what verse 14 has said. So he says, don't repay evil for evil. If I could remember all the times that after I had a fight with my brother, my mom sat me down on the bed and read this passage to me. I should have it memorized. I don't know that it changed me yet. But it stuck in my mind. But do you see how Paul phrases this? He says, recompense to no man, evil for evil. So how is he describing repaying, revenge? He's using the term, God's term of, that's evil. That's evil. That's just as evil as their evil done to you. So our attempt at payback is described as evil. Don't pay him back with evil. That's not your job. Instead, your job is to provide things honest in the sight of all men. That's the idea of live a life of integrity. Live a life there where, where they cannot accuse you of doing wrong. Now, Titus has lots to say about this. So I'd like you to turn over to Titus. Living a, a life of a, of a testimony in front of the watching world. <clears throat> we could say it another way in two words. Good works. Good works have proceed from grace. In fact, that's one of the signs of the false teachers in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. So then Paul and Titus will tell Titus to teach those the, the, the churches in, on, on Crete the things which become sound doctrine, or in accord with with sound doctrine, or the the life, the ethics, the quality of life and obedience that flows out of sound doctrine. And so in Titus chapter 2, he'll go through different stages of life that are exhibited in the church. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, himself as a leader. And he'll connect that to their testimony to the watching world. Let me just give you some examples. Verse 5. The older women are to teach the younger women to be these things. In verse 5. So that the word of God be not blasphemed. Okay? Then in verse uh, uh, 7. Uh, what, who, who Titus is supposed to be a pattern of good works. Verse 8. Why? That he that is of the contrary part, the outsiders, may be ashamed having no evil thing to say. Of you. Verse 10. Slaves and their masters. Verse 10. Their character. Why? That they may adore the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Verse 14. Why did Jesus save us? Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people or unique people. Zealous of good works. And then later on, verse 3. Be ready to every good work. Reminds us in verse 5, it's not these works that earn our salvation, but these should flow out of our salvation. Verse 8. This is a faithful saying, 
And these things I will, that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And then, verse 14 of chapter 3 of Titus. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. Go with me over to 1 Peter. There's a huge connection here to what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 12 with uh, uh, um, provide things honest in the sight of all men with our witness to the watching world. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Paul again talks about those who would persecute uh, the believer. In verse 10, 9 of chapter 3, he says, Don't render evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrary rise blessing. What does that sound like? They looked at. Knowing that ye are therefore unto call, that you should inherit a blessing. And he talks about our conduct again, our integrity. And in verse 13, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. While they might slander you, when it all comes down to it, because of the way you live in front of them and your, and, and your humble, repentant living when you do wrong in front of them, they can't say anything about your relationship with Jesus. So that's why Paul says in Romans 12, don't repay evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. In verse 18, back in Romans chapter 12. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now notice those, that qualifying phrase, if it be possible. In other words, don't be naive in believing that peace with all people is necessarily possible. But pursue it. Strive for it. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers. The peacemakers. Therefore, having peace with God, Paul says. Right relationship with God. Then strive for peace with men. And here's where they, they, he, he kind of tightens the bolt a little bit on us. Verses 19 through 21. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. He says, give place to wrath. He's repeated what he's already said before. Don't recompense evil for evil. Avenge not yourselves, but give place unto wrath. What in the world does that mean? Why would in all this Paul say to us, give place to wrath? Give wrath a place. Well, that wouldn't make any sense if he's talking about our wrath. But in the context, he's talking about the wrath of God. Allowing the wrath of God to let it do its duty. In other words, here's what he's saying to us. Hand over your urge to repay evil to God's wrath. Now, all throughout this, this book, and we can look in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, and verse 8, Romans 3, 5, Romans 5, 9, Romans 9, 22. 
He talks about the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Ephesians 2, 3, he talks about us being uh, uh, under the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, etc. In verse 19, where it says, It is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 35. And I want you to turn there quickly with me. As God gave the Israelites the law, Deuteronomy is a recording of that, as he rehashed the law again to the Israelites, and reconfirmed his covenant with them. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, says this, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense and repaying. Their foot, those who he will execute his judgment and wrath on, their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people. That phrase there, their foot shall slide in due time. That was the phrase that Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And what Paul is taking that text and putting it in Romans 12 to help us understand that when we are mistreated and we are burning up about it, we are not to give in, but we are to put the outcome of our enemies in God's hands. As we understand His justice... On the day of judgment as he sets accounts right. In other words, we are to understand that repayment, that vengeance, that retaliation will take place. But it is not up to us. And it's in the future, ultimately. Now, it's crucial to believe that God will judge our enemies. In fact, that's why Paul spends the whole first chapter of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 about it. Remind them that those who are persecuting the Thessalonians, uh, uh, God will in 2 Thessalonians 1 6, 6 recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. He says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them. Retaliation will take place, but it is not up to us. We are not the district attorney and judge prosecuting others. It's God. And it's crucial to believe that. Because if God is good, and He does all things well, and we are to uh, uh, pray for the salvation of of all men, we can do that while recognizing that if they do not repent, they will experience His wrath. And you might say, well, how how in the world can we... Turn someone over to God's wrath and, and, still, uh, and still bless them and, and, and be uh, compassionate about their soul. And there's a, there's a, a help at an answer to this uh, in the bulletin, the quote there. Can we pray for justice and yet love our enemy at the same time? The answer is yes. We will magnify the mercy of God by praying for our enemies to be saved and reconciled to God. At the personal level, we will be willing to suffer for their everlasting good and we will give them food and drink. We will put away malicious hatred and private vengeance, but at the public level we will also magnify the justice of God 
by praying and working for justice to be done on earth, if necessary, through wise and measured force from God-ordained authority. And that's what Paul will go on to say in Romans, Romans 13. In other words, it is not a wrong thing to pray for vengeance on God's enemies if you can, at the same time, bless them that curse you. In fact, look what he says in verse 20. On the basis of all this, therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. He says, not only don't take revenge, but he makes it a little bit harder, like verse 14. Do good to them. Because a heart that is rescued from the task of vengeance and a, and, and, and a correct understanding of God's grace toward them, personally, instead of His wrath towards them, and His mercy of Jesus Christ, can actually delight in doing good to those that hate them. He quotes in verse 20 from Proverbs 25, verse 22. He says, keep coals of fire on, on their head. There's different views on that. Some people see the coals of fire as symbolizing... Uh, you're, you're, you're putting a burning shame on them for, for the way they acted to you when you do good to them in spite of their their uh, their uh, their cruelty to you. That's possible. That's what the majority see. Um, there's also some people say uh, that the burning coals of fire heaping on their heads is, is a change of mind when good is returned. Um, but and that's possible. But every time the metaphor of coals of fire is used. In the Old Testament, it's always a metaphor for God's judgment, for God's wrath. In other words, just as we are to refrain from revenge because God will do the judging, we are also to do good because God will punish them. That's all in His hands. The promise of God's judgment actually frees you it actually liberates you to do good to your enemies and not take revenge on them. We're free to bless them because God will make things right in the end. It's not about fairness. He will be fair and just in the end. And our biggest argument in the back of our minds against doing good to someone who's nasty to us is that it's not fair. But the promise is that God will make it right. He will make it right. And so the end assures us there that he, he will be just. He is more just than you and I could ever be, in fact. So we can bless them and pray for their repentance so they do evil against us. Because God is a judge who will do right in that great day. And perhaps, as Paul prayed in Second Timothy, he may grant them repentance. He may grant, grant them repentance just as he did to you. And I. That's the bark of the Spirit and a renewed mind and a new master. And so Paul then will bring it all together and say, Be not overcome or mastered of evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't be mastered by their evil. Don't hold bitterness against them. It's like if someone has said, Drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. Master their evil with your master's promise. That He gives you the courage and power to do good to them because He's the righteous judge who will set things straight. And you know where the early church had to really first learn this? With Paul. 
Remember? He was on their way, on his way to kill him. They found out that Jesus visited him, and they were pretty apprehensive. Elizabeth Elliot had to learn to do this with the Aka Indians who murdered her husband and her children's father. I don't have time to share the story of, of Adoniram and Ann Judson in Burma, but they had to do this to people who uh, were, were cruel to him. You see, the power for dealing with your enemies is found in the gospel. It's found at the cross. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. As we wrap up. Peter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Did you hear that phrase? He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. That's the point Paul's trying to get across in Romans 12. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sins should live on the righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray. But are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Here's the three quick things you can take away from Romans 12. Rest in the sure promise of God. Things will be made right in the end. You have to be anchored in that. And that's faith. That takes faith. Rest in the sure promise of God. Things will be made right. Secondly, humble yourself in the gospel. You were far off. You were an enemy. You deserved God's wrath. Romans 5.8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You were shown mercy and forgiven. Tim Keller, as he uh, writes about Jesus eating with sinners, he says, Jesus eating with these sinners is something that will just knock you flat if you understand it. It means no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, the distinction that Jesus recognizes is not between the good and the bad. The only distinction that divides humanity now is between the proud and the humble. That's the only one that counts. It's the only one that matters. Are you willing to say, Lord Jesus, I am not worthy. You don't owe me a good life. You don't. You owe me nothing but wrath. The moment that happens, he rushes in to eat with you. If you say, you owe me a good life. The minute that happens, he says, I have not come for you. Wow, that's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's simple. That's profound. Humble yourself in the gospel. Maybe you need to read Psalm 35. And be reminded of how God will set all things right. And then you need to read the New Testament portrayals of the gospel, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. How God showed mercy to you. Humble yourself in the gospel. And then thirdly, in closing, bless your enemies. Bless your enemies. That means an active participation in that. And that means in tangible ways. Tangible ways. Bless your enemies. You may, God may grant repentance to them through your demonstration of mercy of God and kindness as Christ won you. You're not guaranteed that. That's why you need to rest in 
number one there, the sure promise of God, that all things will be made right. But you need to have the proper framework of thinking, humble yourselves in the gospel. And then your action is to bless your enemies actively and tangibly. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 12, the last verse there, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. God is great, He is mighty, He is powerful, and that's the only way you'll work through this issue with people who are against you. Let's pray.